pray that this morning you would give us the eyes to see and the mind to know and the soul to feel and believe that we would be able to recognize and give you thanks for all the good gifts that you have given us. I pray that you would open up our eyes and open up our hearts that we might see all the ways that you are working in our lives and the lives of others as we lift up our specific request. And we pray that you would give us the eyes to see and the, the heart to to notice the ways that you invite us into your work and the lives of people around us, bringing faith and joy and love. We pray that this morning uh, your spirit would continue to move and speak, that we would be receptive to um, what it is you are trying to teach us, trying to tell us this morning. Um, That as always, we would listen and be transformed in the process. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of you. If you have a Bible, open up with me to John chapter 5. John 5 is where we will be this morning as we look at the third sign that John presents to us in his gospel. We are in the middle of a sermon series on the seven signs in John's gospel. John tells us that Jesus did a lot of signs through his ministry, but he presents some specific ones for us, seven, so that we might believe in Jesus and that by believing in him, we might have life, the life that Jesus has come to bring. We've looked at the first two signs, John's word for miracles. Jesus turns water into wine. Jesus heals a young boy sick with a fever. Uh, the son of a royal official. And now in John 5, we get the third sign. God, or John calls them signs because they are pointers. They are directing us to um, deep uh, and more universal truths. Um, John 5, verse 1, we'll read together. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda which has five roofed colonnades, porticos or porches. And these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going down, another one steps in before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. And now that day, the day of the sign, was the Sabbath. This is our third sign, the third miracle John gives to us to allow us to walk towards believing more in Jesus and finding more life in his name. You have here a moving story of a paralyzed man finding healing through Jesus. The context of this story is a pool in Bethesda. Um, This is actually a spot that was discovered and excavated by archaeologists a little over 20 years ago. Um, So what, what happens as time passes 
debris and dirt pile up on civilizations of old. And we have, through uh, faithful archaeologists and our scientific capacities, been able to kind of dig down, clean up, and see what was really there. And for the longest time, we had no real historical proof of where this pool was, what it was like. And again, very recently in our lifetimes, archaeologists made this massive discovery. And there are these two pools fed by a spring. They do indeed have these porches built around them with roofs for people to kind of stay in or lay in. Um, And it's at the north of the Temple Mount. So we're in Jerusalem, which is down south in Israel. It's at the very north. There's a gate right by it that in ancient times was called the Sheep Gate, um, where people would bring their, their sheep into Jerusalem. It's at this pool that this miracle takes place. I want you to notice the historical details John presents to us. This is indicative of how all the Gospels tell the story of Jesus. It's a story of history. You know, there are stories in Scripture that sound kind of like a, a parable or an allegory. Not a whole lot of historical detail given. It kind of would happen or could happen in any time period at any place. But the Gospels are presented regularly as history. They go out of their way to tell you exactly where these things happened, what time they happened, who was there and experienced it and participated, who might be able to confirm these stories. The Gospels um, want us to, to see and recognize the work of God in Christ that took place a couple thousand years ago in Israel, in Galilee, Samaria, and Judea. Sometimes when people are looking at the signs of John's gospel, there's a temptation to take away from the history of the miracle behind that sign, as if this is just a story to just transition us to a a larger but kind of separate spiritual truth, just this idea. That's not what John wants us to do. The sign does point to other things, but it points that way because of a historical event, because of God working through Jesus, God's present, a reality in these people's lives. So you're at this pool. There's all of these people who are sick, blind, lame, not like you're lame, but paralyzed. This man seems to have been paralyzed. We're told that he had been an invalid for 38 years. I want you to think about that. It's a long time period. That's like three times my age. Now, to put it in some context, 38 years old is actually not a bad lifespan in the first century. I mean, these people don't have preventive medicine, antibiotics. They're not living super long lives like we do. 45 years old, maybe, is a good average lifespan for a healthy person. So we don't know how old this man is, how long uh, he had lived before he was afflicted with this. But he's had 38 years of this affliction, this oppression. If anyone has a, like a chronic disease or chronic pain, you can kind of understand the despair that starts to creep up just over a long period of time. And Jesus comes up to this man. He puts two and two together and realizes this guy's been there for a long time. And he asks him a very interesting question. He says, do you want to be healed? Now we've talked about this before. Jesus isn't on a one-man healing mission. If he was, you might expect him to clear out all of these porches. It's like, come on, get on the line. We're going to heal you. 
He just picks one person there. It seems like he goes out of his way to pick a person who kind of embodies this despair of 38 years and, and kind of a helplessness. This is a man who can't even move to get towards the healing that he thinks is available for him in these pools. Jesus asks with this, this promise and this hope, this kind of implicit offer, do you want to be healed? I can, I can do this for you. The sick man doesn't quite get it. He says, sir, I've got no one to put me in the pool when the water's stirred up. And when I'm going down, other people get in there before me. Now, to explain this, here's what's happening at the pool of Bethesda. If you're a careful reader, you'll notice we just skipped. Like, we didn't even care from verse 3 to verse 5. There's no verse 4, the case of the missing four. In your ESV Bibles, you'll probably have a note, a little number after verse 3. When it says 4, and you look down to the bottom, it says some manuscripts insert, holy or in part, this in verse 3, waiting for the moving of the water. And then in verse 4, For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease that he had. Now, we are taking verse 4 out and putting it at the bottom because biblical scholars, textual critics, are pretty sure this wasn't what John wrote. It's not there in all of our copies of John until a much later date when all of a sudden this detail is provided for us. We numbered it way after all of this happened. And most people are pretty sure a scribe inserted this at some later point. It doesn't make it wrong. That doesn't make it evil. That doesn't make our Bible compromised. It's us just trying to recognize and, and figure out what's there and what's not there. It seems like the scribe put it in to kind of make sense of the story. He provides some details for us. So he, he tells us what's so magical about this, this pool. It's not just any pool. It's not just a place to go enjoy uh, a nice sunny day and do a little swimming. There had been kind of a legend built up around this pool. It was fed by intermittent springs, springs that come and go, and when they come, they fill up these two pools. And the belief that these Jewish people had built up was that when the water started to move, which would be the spring starting to, to kind of be active, that this was an angel of the Lord coming to the pool. And from that point on, it was a free-for-all to who could jump into this water the first. It's the first one in, it's the first one, and only one served, and they get healed. Now, in an ancient society where a lot of the main afflictions that people had were skin diseases, They've got not got moisturizers. They don't exfoliate. They don't have antibiotics. They don't have rash cream. You can actually see, without any sense of like miraculous uh, of a nature to this, how a spring like this might provide relief to people with these, these skin conditions. If that's kind of what's happening here, and that's how people get this um, legend built up around the healing properties of this water, it would also make sense why a paralyzed man finds no relief. And for 38 years, well, he never gets into the water first, but he's not been, been helped by, by these waters. Uh, I, it was interesting to, to learn this week that there's actually a lot of places still like this. There are pools of water around the world that people still revere as sacred and, and say you find healing um, by taking a dip in this water. There are other sacred type of areas. 
Um, two were very interesting to me, that in southern France, there's a city that has a spa that many believe has healing capabilities. Um, it's a large draw for people in that part of Europe and France, and there's this kind of sacred nature to this, this natural spa that exists. In Mexico City, there's a place called the Shrine of Guadalupe, and what you see when you go there is there's thousands of crutches standing up against the wall at this shrine. And these were put there, so goes the stories, by people who came to the shrine with crutches, were healed, and left them there on the wall. That's kind of signs or tokens of the healing um, that they had received there. Now we have no indication that an angel really was messing with this water, that there really was this promise that you get in first and you receive whatever healing it is that you want. Notice that the man has kind of low expectations for Jesus. Jesus comes and says, do you want to be healed? And he goes, well, yeah, but I can't get in that water soon enough. Maybe you could like pick me up, throw me in there. Jesus is like, ah, I don't think you quite get it yet. He says, forget about the water. Let's heal you. Get up. Or the, the word is rise. It's a resurrection language John uses a lot. Rise up, take up your bed, and walk away. How often it is that we come to God with a request. We want him to work in our lives, for the lives of other people, and we lowball him because of the best idea we can come up with. Help me get into the water. And God's like, we don't need the water. I'm more powerful than that. I'm more direct than that. You have this wonderful kind of reversal of fortunes. And now the bed which once carried this man who couldn't move is now being carried by a healed person. Jesus seems to want him to walk away with this mat as a sign of the healing, as a testimony to what had happened. And then at the very end of the story, we're told the next day, or this day, was, was the Sabbath day. And this is a very interesting way to tell a story when you kind of throw in a big detail right there at the end. And it is a big detail. In fact, most of John chapter 5 is going to be about a controversy about the Sabbath. And indeed, I think this is primarily what this sign is pointing us toward, is what we learn, what Jesus reveals about his identity and his actions in the world from his work on the Sabbath. John kind of leaves breadcrumbs for us, so we don't have to come up with this on our own. If we keep reading in verse 10, So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, when John uses the word Jews, he's most likely just referring to the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, not just the people as a whole. They said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. In fact, there were lots of rules about what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. You're supposed to rest. Some things constituted work for for the Jewish leaders, and so they were unlawful. And indeed, a very clear law of the Sabbath back at this time was you can't move from one house to another. You can't take stuff and try to to, to kind of have a moving day on the Sabbath. They're like, no, that's anyone's moved understands, right? This is a lot of work. It's a lot of stress. It's not a Sabbath-type activity. Now, this man's home is not very impressive, right? But he's taking his bed from one place, uh, conceivably taking it to, to somewhere new. The man answered him, and this is very interesting, 
the man who healed me, that man told me, take up my bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said that to you? Take up your bed and walk. And now the man who had been healed in verse 13 did not know who it was. For Jesus uh, had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. All three of, of the signs we've gotten so far in John's gospel are not super public, extravagant displays. The water turned into wine. It was just something revealed to Mary and the disciples. Not even the, the groom or the master of festivities knows kind of what's taking place. When Jesus heals the royal official son, he goes out of his way to make sure that it's not a real public thing. He's worried about people just being interested in the signs and not in him. And now here, he heals a guy and then goes undercover boss on him. Just kind of slips away into the crowd. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered him, them saying, My father is working until now, and I am working. John chapter 5 starts a new kind of theme in John's gospel, starts a new kind of chapter, where for the next few chapters, up until really chapter 10, John's going to increasingly show us a tension that's building between Jesus and the leaders of Judaism in Jerusalem. And this is our first kind of big conflict point. It's a conflict over the Sabbath. It's an accusation that Jesus is doing unlawful things on the Sabbath. It's encouraging other people to do unlawful things. Not unlawful in the sense of like civil law. This is a religious thing. Unlawful in the sense of sinful, disobedient, disrespectful to the commands of God given to us to observe the Sabbath. Jesus, though, like he does in chapter 6, it's pretty much the same kind of formula. In chapter 6, we'll get a, a sign, a miracle. We'll get reaction from the crowds. And then we'll get Jesus kind of explaining himself in, in kind of a, a monologue. He does this here as well. We'll just read the first part of what Jesus says, um, picking up in verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. If that wasn't clear that he was making himself equal with God, it's about to get a lot clearer. Verse 19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And in a sense, he just did that. He just gave life to who he picked out here at this pool. This is what God does. And Jesus says, the line between me and the Father is not as distinct as you might think. He shares with me. We're equal in power and activity. The desires of God are now being concretely happening in history through Jesus. The Father judges no one, verse 22, but has given all judgment to the Son. Again, what's reserved for God, the two big things in Judaism God does is he gives life and he judges the righteous and the unrighteous. Both of these things have now been given over to the Son. 
that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. In the same way the Father's worship, Jesus is saying, me as a son has the same honor, same worship as due. And he says even more, whoever doesn't honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So Jesus makes this claim, which is your reaction to the Father is dependent on your reaction to me. It's no longer about what you say you think about the Father. Because he sent me, I'm doing his work. And so you will be judged on how you respond to me or not. If you don't honor me, you don't honor the Father who sent me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. Notice that language. We'll come back to it. An hour is coming in the future, but it's now here in a sense. It's kind of come into the present. An hour is coming. It's now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. We just saw this worked out at this pool. The person who is basically dead, has no life, hears the word spoken by God through Jesus into his creation, and he hears and has life. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And as he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, and in the future, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This always strikes me here in John, the last couple of sentences we read, as a very kind of like zombie-like picture. Jesus saying, one day in the future, I'm going to speak. And I'm going to say, get up, rise, and tombs will start to open up. And people who were dead will have their bodies reanimated. The Spirit will breathe new life into them as He once breathed life into them. And they'll come to a resurrection, some for eternal life, those who have done good, and some for a resurrection of judgment, those who have done evil. There's kind of an a echo in what Jesus says to the man and what all of creation will one day hear. Jesus says, the hour is coming when I'm going to speak and the tombs will open. And it has now come at the pool of Bethesda. When I speak and this man who can't get up rises. This is one day what Jesus will say to all of creation. Rise up. Have life. Enjoy eternal life, an embodied life, a resurrection life. But the real, the real issue here that points us to what this miracle is seeking us to see and realize is centered on this Sabbath issue. Jesus is working on the Sabbath and having other people do things on the Sabbath that is unlawful. We might notice just off the bat that it seems here and elsewhere throughout Scripture, those who focus on the little rules often miss what the Spirit is doing. In fact, the Spirit seems to care very little about our kind of real petty little rules, about what can and can't happen, what should and shouldn't happen. The Spirit doesn't like those lines. God's activity is not limited to our created boundaries, to what we think He has to do or can't do or is supposed to do. 
Jesus is having conflicting belief about the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders say, look, you're supposed to rest. We've come up with what that rest looks like on the Sabbath. You're not doing that, and you are having this other guy commit unlawful acts. And Jesus, his response is, you don't understand. God is working right now. The Father's working, so I'm working. Which is that one and the same time, both blasphemous to these Jewish people and just confusing. They simply disagree about what's happening on this particular day. In, in certain Jewish people's beliefs, Judaism back then and now is not a monolithic thing. There were different groups who believed different things about different things. But there was a certain belief that what God did on the Sabbath was not just purely rest, but every Saturday their Sabbath, God did two things. And this was really only two things God was doing. God gives life and he judges the dead. And they deduced this because babies are still born on on Saturdays and people still die on Saturdays, right? Like the entire economy of the universe doesn't just stop on a Saturday and everyone just sits there. No work is still happening. God's still involved in that. But in in a sense, Jesus is operating outside of the time zone outside of the the limits and expectations that these Jewish people had for this day. In fact, I think the time zone metaphor is actually a good one to understand what's happening here, what John's trying to get us to understand. If you were to go to Australia right now, they are very far ahead of us in terms of time. So it's actually Monday morning in Australia. Here's the dream right here. To live in Australia... To wake up on a Monday, take the day off from work, lay in bed, and watch NFL football live on Monday morning. If a person comes from Australia, they actually go back in time in the way that we talk about it and understand it. If they flew back right now, they'd be leaving Monday and going back to Sunday. They'd be coming from the future, in a sense, into our experienced present. This is actually what the scriptures present to us as what is happening in the life of Jesus and his work and his death and his resurrection. What we're told and what we're given a sense of to believe is that in Jesus, God's future has burst into our present. In this sense, Jesus is a person from the present. And he's traveled and now he's bringing things from the future into reality right now, 2,000 years ago in Galilee and Samaria and Judea. You can see this in a lot of different ways. Um, One of them is just the resurrection of Jesus himself. So the Jewish people had a very firm belief this time that yes, one day God was going to accomplish a resurrection, but it was going to be a community thing. All of the people would be raised at one time. And what was shocking to the Jewish people about Jesus' resurrection was not that there was a body that was dead and then raised to eternal life. They fully expected this. What was weird about it was it only happened to one person. They were waiting. We are waiting for the final resurrection of the dead. When all these tombs open up. That's God's future. But in Jesus, that future has come rushing into our present moment. 
and everything changes. And the Jewish people, they thought of the timeline and time zones of world history in two very kind of distinct ways. There were two ages. There was an old age and there was a new age, the age of eternity. And the old age was characterized by sin and death and pain and sickness. But they believed that one day God would act dramatically, would invade creation, would resurrect his people, and then the old age would end in a very clear split, and the new age, the age to come, the age of eternity would begin. This age is characterized by peace and healing, by eternal life, by the work of the Spirit. Now Christians had to rethink this because of Jesus. They have to rethink how we're going to view this. We kind of start with the same assumption that the Jewish people had through the Scriptures in the Old Testament. But we have to kind of work backwards from what has happened somewhat surprisingly to us. And here's how Christians start to think about their timeline. They believe that what's happened in Jesus is God's future has been kind of put down as a down payment in our reality. So that these two ages, if you think of them as like tectonic plates, in the life of Jesus, there's this shift and they start to overlap. And Christians believe that the new age started with Jesus' resurrection. The spirit of God is active and at work in his people. People are being healed. People are experiencing life and forgiveness. But, An interesting thing happened. The new age started, but the old age didn't end. It still continues on. There's a time of overlap where there are two different timelines on the table, two different types of world to live in and experience. And so sin continued and death continues and pain and sickness continues. And Christians believe when this old age actually is done away with completely is when Jesus returns. So they, in a sense, took that one act of God and they zoomed in and saw it was actually two acts. Jesus begins the new age with his resurrection. He ends the old age when he returns and resurrects all people. And this is how we explain our current reality. We are living in a time of parallel ages. And yes, the Spirit is at work. And people receive forgiveness and healing and life. But yet, there's death around us. And there's sin around us. And how a lot of the New Testament talks about our reality, in a similar way to Jesus, is that we're people from the future. We are people who have jumped timelines. Galatians 1 says this, we've been transferred from one kingdom to another. The other kingdom still exists, it's still around us, but we are citizens of a different one. We're a peculiar people. Just like Jesus, we are from the future. And so we act a little bit differently than other people. We think different things are possible. We expect different things out of our world. And this kind of understanding of the the overlap of these ages makes sense of a lot of what we experience. Some people are healed by God. Some aren't. Left to our own thinking, we might imagine maybe God was nice to that person, not so nice about this person. 
Maybe that person had more faith. This person doesn't have much faith. But when you're, you're thinking about this overlap of ages, it makes sense. There's a down payment of healing happening, but it still largely exists in a world where not everything is healed, where even that which is healed will still die. Healing, a physical type of healing like this man receives, is important. It's life-giving, but it's ultimately relativized by death's reign. The paralyzed guy can walk, but a day is coming soon where his legs don't work anymore again, where he dies. The little boy was healed of the fever, but a day is coming soon when, when he gets a fever again and when he actually crosses death's door and doesn't just knock on it. Life is given as a taste, a down payment, a foreshadowing of the true eternal life that one day will come, will be ours. And so as Christians, we would expect that as we live in an already but not yet time period, where it's here but not here at the same time, both equally real and true, that you wouldn't see absolute healing. That you'd see some of it springing up from the ground, affecting people around us, but you'd see other aspects of it still hindered by sin and death, by the old age. Not the work of God, just the reality that we have found ourselves in as we sold ourselves into slavery, in sin. We're from the future. We're crossing over time zones like Jesus did as his people. This makes us peculiar and odd. This makes us suspect different things from the world believe different things are possible, and act in a different way in the world. So Christians seek to heal people, like Jesus heals people, because they're from the future. And the future is a time of healing and wholeness. It's a time where sickness is done away with. I don't know if you know this, hospitals were largely more or less a Christian idea. Let's pull together the sick. Let's do our best to treat them. When the plague comes, it was the Christians who stayed back with the people infected by the plague, sacrificing their lives to give them some comfort and some peace, some treatment, some healing. And the reason Christians heal and seek healing and work for healing in a world where sickness still just constantly attacks is because we're from a time of healing. We're working on these down payments, these foreshadowings. The reason Christians seek peace in the world is because in the new age that we belong to, it's a time of peace. It's a time where our prophets say weapons will be bent and hammered into tools. So when Christians take weapons and they hammer them into tools, Today, it's the thing that happens. Kind of more prophetic Christians will get a gathering together and they'll take an AR-15 and they'll put it into a, a garden tool and give it to a homeless community. We do this not because we're naive about the world, not because we don't understand weapons still exist, people still use them, a lot of times inappropriately, because we don't belong to that time period. We're giving witness to a different time. One that is coming, but is also now here. 
when we seek peace. The role of the Christian is similar to the role of Jesus, and that we seek to embody the life and the work and the reality of God's action in history in our present. Instead of just accepting or propping up or kind of sprinkling Jesus baptizing the status quo of the old age. We don't accept that. We're not bound by that. Our imaginations aren't limited to that time period. Here's an example I'll give you. I hope it's not too partisan for you and you don't think I'm a um, faithless, liberal, just godless human being. We had the shooting at the school in Florida. Of course, if you're on social media, you've seen everyone just starts to bicker about what it is exactly that needs to be done. One of the solutions presented by lots of different people, which I do think practically would be a big help, just because of the circumstances we're in, it's not ideal, but it would help, is to get some more security at these schools. If you can pay, get some armed guards. Other people are looking at like other things of you know trying to weaponize you know someone in the military who might be might be teaching there. But here's 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 where I keep coming to. Here's the the issue I keep running into with that. Even though I think that would be a wise thing to do, is that the prophets of my tradition didn't imagine a world where society had a sniper on every roof. They imagine a world where there were literally no snipers. And while it might be a step forward to protect our kids by doing things like that, if that's as far as we can imagine, and if that's as far as we're willing to work towards now, then I would suggest the problem is with us, not with reality. Being a people from the future means we have new imaginations. We're not constrained to the realities that seem so dominant to us. We're people who can sacrifice our lives. And in that sacrifice, bear witness as a martyr to the future of Jesus. We're people who can go much farther in our imaginations and our pursuits of peace. And not just simply accept the world as it is, but see the world and imagine complete transformation and work in real ways to bear witness to what is coming. We're citizens of a new kingdom. Jesus is a person come from the future, bringing tastes of that future into the present lives of these people in Jerusalem. And so we as his people do the same. We endeavor to embody, to live out, to bear witness to the reality that is God at work through Jesus. And one of the ways we do this, it's not easy to do. It's pretty easy to get beat down by the old age, to imagine that that's really all that there is. There's not a whole lot of spirit to be found. There's not a whole lot of future to be experienced. And so this is why we worship. This is why we come together. This is why we have small groups. Just remind ourselves when we get discouraged, when we start to forget. We're different people. There are different possibilities. There are different expectations. One of the ways we do this 
just by coming every week and engaging in a feast, a feast on the body of Jesus and on the blood of Jesus. In a mysterious but real way, this meal nourishes us. This meal gives energy to our new creation lives. It gives sustenance to the new muscles of faith and hope that we're building. And so in a moment, we will come forward as we do to eat and drink as people who belong to Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, we come this morning thankful for the many gifts you have given us. We are thankful for the scriptures, thankful for um, the time together to um, look deeply at them. 